My next guest for Cat Week is Dr. Lisa Pearson. So thank you for joining me, Dr. Lisa. I appreciate you spending a few minutes with us. I always appreciate you asking me, so it's kind of fun to do these interviews. It's very fun. Um, Tell us, and most all of my audience knows exactly who you are and what you do, and we're so thankful for the invaluable information that you are constantly um, ever presenting on your website. But for maybe for first time or brand new kitty owners, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, I graduated from UC Davis, that school, in 1984, so about 33 years ago. And, but it's been the most, mostly the last 15 years that I've really focused on feline nutrition and feline medicine. Um, I kind of got my head around wanting to feed these cats properly to possibly prevent the very diseases we've been treating, like diabetes, urethral obstructions. And my biggest goal, as you well know, is to get people to stop feeding dry food to cats due to the water depletion leading to urethral obstructions and the carbohydrates making them more susceptible to diabetes. But I know today we're going to focus on feeding the kitty with uh, kidney disease because that is the number one problem that we seem to see in in feline practice. So I think that's going to be our focus today is how we want to feed these cats with kidney disease. Wonderful. I can't think of a better topic. And just, just what are your thoughts on why? You know, when I went to vet school 20 years ago, they said three out of four cats would die of kidney disease, but they didn't tell us why. They just gave us the stat that we should prepare ourselves. There's nothing you can do. Cats um, you know, are predisposed to dying of kidney failure. They taught us how to identify it, but they didn't teach us why, why it's going on. What are your thoughts on what this epidemic of kidney disease is from? That's a fabulous question that I wish I had the answer to. We do know that there's uh, research out of Colorado State University, Dr. Michael Lappin, who's a very well-respected researcher, that that has a a link um, to the FERCP vaccine, which is grown in feline kidney cell cultures. And we really want to be very careful not to over-vaccinate cats because they can possibly set up an autoimmune type of reaction to their own kidney cells. Having said that, my own cat still developed kidney disease, and I assure you they were not over-vaccinated. They got vaccinated as kittens. They passed away between 18 and 20 years of age. They were never vaccinated since kittens, yet they still got kidney disease. They were not on dry food. They were on a water-rich diet. The short answer to your question is, I don't know, but I wish I did. Yeah. And, you know, so just this is totally off-topic, but... but um, really good information that just sparked in my brain. I advocate that if you have an indoor kitty that you don't vaccinate at all because their exposure is none. What are your thoughts if you know that this kitty will never step foot outside and that the owners will never bring any cats into the home? What are your thoughts on not vaccinating for anything ever? Well, my own cats, and this is interesting, I had five cats two years ago. I lost four out of my five cats in the last two years. They were between 18 and 20 years of age. Nobody had been vaccinated since they were kittens. Maybe a couple of them had a, a FERCP, the three-way, which is the herpes, Khaleesi, panleukopenia, also known as kitty distemper. None of them had been vaccinated since they were kittens or maybe a year old. I ran panluk titers, kitty distemper titers, which measures the antibody level in the bloodstream, which we all know antibodies are not the only thing that fight disease, but for all intents and purposes, they all had protective titers. Mm-hmm. And my mom's cat is 20 years of age. I don't think I vaccinated him since he was five years of age. And I ran a, I ran a couple of titers on him, and he comes back, you know, technically protective for whatever that means. Mm-hmm. So my own cats, I have to admit, they're 100% indoor. That's it. 
and they get vaccinated when they're kittens. Um, the, no, or the, the last vaccine has to be at least when they're 16 weeks of age to deal with maternal antibodies. And then you know what? I'm done. Yeah, I hate to say it, but I'm done. And you know, and I I have done exactly what you have done to my indoor cats. They got uh, one one vaccine at 16 weeks. But I'm thinking now, if I were to get a if I were to get another cat, another kitten that I know will be strictly indoors, I think I would probably do nothing, nothing, not one. I would do probably none because their exposure is is none in my opinion. But but neither here nor there, you actually bring up a really good point that you are um, a brilliant cat veterinarian and you've done everything right. And yet you can still have cats suffer from debilitating diseases, including kidney disease after you've done everything right. So you and I both have a lot of clients that say, I don't know what I've done wrong. And oftentimes they've done nothing wrong. They've done everything right. And your cat still can suffer from kidney disease. And that's an important, that's a really important thing to talk about because people, you know, end up feeling incredibly guilty over something that they should have, could have, would have done differently. And oftentimes you can't identify anything that you do differently. Um, like, like in your cat situation, your kitty still acquired kidney disease. Um, now your kitty was really, really old, which is a blessing. I mean, that's, you have a really old cat. Um, but all that to say, sometimes you can do everything right and you still end up with really frustrating and heartbreaking uh, diagnoses at the veterinarian. If you wanted to help people prevent kidney disease, um, how would you, what, what are your top suggestions knowing maybe they've already had the heartbreak of dealing with a cat that has had chronic kidney disease or people are proactive and they're aware that this is a huge risk? What are some suggestions on some things you could do early on to help prevent kidney disease from manifesting or at least manifesting later in life? Yeah, as far as that goes, I don't know anything concrete. Um, some will say, sure, if you feed a water-depleted diet like dry food, you could stress the kidneys. I don't know that there's any research that supports that. Um, I don't I don't know. I mean, the kidney is saying, well, heck, you're only putting a water-depleted uh, diet in my bowl. I better really super concentrate this urine, meaning save a lot of water for the body and kick out a very high high urine specific gravity high concentrated urine meaning very little water does that cause or um lend itself to kidney disease i really don't know um definitely not over vaccinating i know for myself i would always give at least one vaccine i've just seen enough cats die from panleukopenia we do take these cats into the vet hospitals um so i i would at least vaccinate once it's you know, at least once. So I kind of differ with you on that mm-hmm. a little bit. I yep. think I'd be a little worried about leaving them completely naked, you know, that type of thing. But back to the kidney disease. Um, you know, I feed a water-rich diet. I, I feed a species-appropriate diet, high protein. We're going to talk about protein as it, as it affects the kidneys because protein is not the enemy yep. of the cat kidney. Protein yep. doesn't cause kidney disease. It doesn't exacerbate kidney disease. It is not the enemy of the kidney. If there's one take-home message I want to get across, it's please stop vilifying protein mm-hmm. and get away from these awful low-protein prescription diets, none of which I would ever feed to any cat in my care. So, um, so, so you know, let, let me just interrupt and ask you a question pertaining to that. I know Dr. Delmar Finko in 1994 proved that kitties die of hypoproteinemia, low protein, long before they would ever die of kidney disease. If he did that research in 94, why, why on earth? is there still this pervasive thought in veterinary medicine that we should restrict protein? Like how, why, why have veterinarians not recognized that this is a really bad idea? What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, let's, let's back up for a second and say, why did it come to be to begin with? Why did this profession glom onto protein as the bad guy? When we eat protein, we break it down, we use what we need, and BUN, blood urea nitrogen, or known as urea, is a waste product of protein metabolism. So when we eat protein, and the more protein we eat, the more the BUN load. Well, if the kidney is efficient and healthy, it filters the BUN, which is trash, it's garbage, it's a waste product, and it kicks it off into the litter box, no harm. When the kidney becomes a less efficient filtration organ, the BUN climbs. So the powers that be said, hmm, you know, BUN comes from dietary protein, let's just minimize dietary protein. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think we need to talk about where it came from first. And then, I have to be very tactful here, but our colleagues are not that interested in nutrition. Right. They're really not. And so they defer to the pet food companies. So the question is, why are the pet food companies or the nutritionists that formulate these diets not getting on board with this? Right, exactly. And and I think, um, you know, part of my thought process is, number one, if you're feeding a really terrible quality rendered protein, you know, that could, that's constantly dehydrated, um, you know, that, that could potentially, you know, feeding uh, hooves and nails is, that's 100% protein, but it's just not digestible. So really poor quality protein may long-term negatively affect the kidneys, but excellent quality human grade, really bioavailable protein, which is what kidneys would be hunting in the wild, that, that of course would not in any way negatively impact their organ systems or they never would have been so successful as a species. But don't you think that part of it is because we've preached this low protein long enough, we would have for us to switch viewpoints at this point, it would it would dramatically affect the pet food industry and a billion dollar industry. And I think maybe we're too far in to actually turn around and switch gears. I don't know. I'm I'm still hopeful. I you know I, I, I'm, I'm, oh boy, I am still hopeful yeah. because I did speak with a colleague the other day that she said, wow, I just went to a seminar and they were preaching, we've got to stop protein starving these cats. And I went, hallelujah, I've been preaching this for 15 years, as have you. So I want to give your, your listeners some numbers to chew on because I don't like to say low, high, medium. I want numbers. Yep. If you look at metabolizable energy, meaning calories from the calories from proteins, fats, and carbs have to add up to 100%. KD, something like Hills KD, Purina, you know, NF, uh, Royal Canin, I'm not going to pick on any one particular company. Let's just say the prescription renal diets are somewhere in that 20, 22, maybe as high as 27% of the calories from protein. A cat's natural diet is about 60 to 70%. When I formulate recipes for my CKD cats, or I recommend over-the-counter using my proteins, fats, carbs, phosphorus chart at catinfo.org, I recommend a nice happy medium of 40%. I don't truly think cats need the 60 to 70% that they find in the wild, and all you are doing is adding to the BUN load. So I don't think it's necessary. So I found fabulous luck over the last 15 years feeding probably literally thousands of CKD, chronic kidney disease cats, with right around 40% protein and less than 10% carbs. My homemade diets have zero carbs, so that means they have 60% fat because it has to add up to 100%. So I wanted to just give your listeners some numbers. You know, I think 40% protein will su support muscle mass, 
will support the immune system without overloading the BUN bucket that the kidney then has to deal with. Well, and it's interesting. Your 60% fat actually lines up with a ketogenic diet. Do you have some um, clients who maybe go back to their conventional vet and say, oh, my vet says that's too high in fat? I mean, I get that a lot. And it's um, that, that also is, a, is a, a frustration. And also part of the learning curve is educating um, our clients that fat is a really excellent source of energy. It's, it's, it's their evolutionary source of energy. Um, have you had any pushback with the level of fat or no? No, I actually haven't. Okay. Um, in the wild, I mentioned 60 to 70% protein, you know, 0 to 2% carbs, and in that kind of 10 to 30, 40% fat range. And so 60% can be kind of double what the natural diet is. I uh, Very occasionally, and, and this is, there's been some work done on fat and GI cases, you know, chronic vomiting, chronic diarrhea, IBD. Every now and then I will run across maybe a pancreatitis-type kitty that just doesn't do really well on a, on a 60% fat diet, but that's extremely rare. That's great. Yep. These are obligate carnivores. They're designed to eat protein and fat and no carbs. And what some of the prescription diets do, KD, for instance, when they lower the protein, you have to either raise fat or carbohydrates. It has to add up to 100%. They raise carbohydrates. That species inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Something like Royal Canin, they actually choose to raise the fat, keep the carbs down a bit. That's much more species appropriate. And so, you know, you kind of got to, if you're going to lower protein at all, you know, don't raise the carbohydrates yeah. so low. Raise the fat. It's more species appropriate. Yep, that, that's great advice. So uh, if if people are thinking, you know what, um, you know, I do have a cat that has uh, renal dysfunction, and I'm really frustrated because uh, I feel like my vet could have caught it earlier. One of the things I've tried to convince my clients, which can be difficult, is you know we need to start doing proactive annual blood work to identify some of these subtle changes that are occurring in cats' bodies long before they start drinking more or peeing more. Um, at what age do you suggest that people consider doing annual annual blood work to check the internal organ health uh, of, of their kitties in their house? Okay, that's a great question, but I'm going to turn it around. You know what I check, because it's the first thing to head south, is urine-specific gravity. So I have a spoon sitting next to all of my litter boxes. They're uncovered. I'm not a fan of covered hooded litter boxes at all, and a little syringe. And for 50 to $70, a person can buy a refractometer, This is actually on my urinary tract diseases webpage toward the bottom under the urinalysis section. There's a link there to a refractometer, which you put a couple little drops on it, and you look at urine-specific gravity, which is a measure of the concentrating ability of the kidney. So all of my cats, they all go in for annual blood work anyway, no matter if they're a year of age or whatever. I mean, maybe if they're sick, I'll take them in more frequently. But bottom line is, is I do annual blood work. But I'm checking their urine-specific gravity like a hawk. That's great. Cats are so used to their spoon stuck under their butt. Because yeah. once again, your first tip-off, and I will argue even before the SDMA, which is the IDEX's new proprietary test, which is supposedly better than creatinine at detecting early kidney disease, SDMA, I will argue that urine-specific gravity, which can be done at home for no cost other than your refractometer, is actually a better yep. marker early on. I have found that my cat's urine-specific gravity starts to dip 1040 and above is normal. 1.040 and above is normal. 1012, 1.012 is rock bottom. 
when you start getting that 10.30, 10.25, 10.20, you then may want to take your cat in, check the BUN, the creatinine, the phosphorus, and the potassium. But, that's uh, that's great advice. Really great advice. And cheap and easy, simple. You're not stressing out your cat. You can do it. You know, you can start at six months of age, and so you know, you can start when the when they're when the animals are kittens, and you can just continue to do that proactively throughout their lives. It's a brilliant tip. And I do suggest people set up an Excel spreadsheet for all these, you know, BUN, creatinine, phosphorus, potassium, urine-specific gravity. Those are my big five: BUN, creatinine, phosphorus, potassium, and urine-specific gravity. And I've charted all my cats, which brings me to the IRIS staging system. And I don't know if you want to touch on that now. Let's do. Let's do. Okay. Okay. The IRIS staging system, and I can't remember, it's International... Renal Interest Society. Yep. Yeah, something of that. It's basically, for your listeners, um, a, a group of people, what have you, that got together and sort of picked parameters. Well, when the creatinine is over X they're stage one, when it's over Y, they're stage two, and there's four stages. I personally strongly dislike the system. I think it's far too strict. A creatinine over 1.6 is deemed a problem. I disagree with that. I see many, many, many cats, my own, Robbie, who happens to be lying in my lap at this point in time, has had a creatinine in the low twos for the past 10 years, and he's 17 years of age, and his kidneys are still fine. So the IRIS staging system, in a nutshell, I think it alarms people unnecessarily too early. I think it is too strict. And so I just want readers to, your listeners to understand that when your vet says, you know, stage one kidney failure, eh, maybe, maybe not. Yep. No. Yep. I don't. They they hang black crepe paper over these cats. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And it's it's a whole lot of doom and gloom. Um, and I think can also can lead to animals being euthanized very prematurely when a whole lot can be done for a next for another decade in many situations. Well, what happens is they put them on the prescription renal diet. Yeah. I strongly dislike, and that's one of the reasons I have been having a problem with the SDMA because now these cats are being put on these low protein diets even earlier. earlier. Yeah. So I went, great, you know, we've got an early marker, but now these, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old cats are now being put on low-protein diets, which makes me cringe. Yep, yep absolutely, yeah. So what are your, what are your suggestions when it, um, so, so let's say that you are doing, uh, you're checking your specific gravity, your kitty is doing great year eight, year nine, year 10, uh, specific gravity dips, let's say to 1025, you go in. You do SDMA, you know, they determined that the kitty is in the beginning stages of renal dysfunction. What are your thoughts in terms of what to do at that point? Okay. Um, first of all, let's hope that the cat has been off of dry food all of its life, or at least as soon as you learn that dry food is not a very healthy diet for a cat. So they're on a water-rich diet. Remember, when, when the urine-specific gravity drops, that's telling you, picture a sieve in your kitchen, and that sieve, the holes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, The kidney is leaking more and more water. It's unable to save water for the body. So there's nothing that frustrates me more than to see a cat leave a vet hospital with a bag of fluids under one arm and a bag of dry food under the other arm. So they're feeding a water-depleted diet, and then they're sticking a needle in the cat's back to put water into them. Mm -hmm. Pretty pretty nonsensical. It just reeks of lack of common sense. Um, So step one, water-rich diet. Step two, low phosphorus. Step three, omega-3 fatty acids, fish oil, fish oil, fish oil. Um, 
when we do postmortems on these cats, we see nephritis. Neph means kidney, itis means inflammation. We know that fish oil, omega-3 fatty acids, specifically EPA plus DHA, is anti-inflammatory. They did a metadata study where they looked back on all the individual studies that were done, and they said, wow, this is interesting. The cats that were on the highest amount of fish oil seem to live the longest. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm not that bright, but 2 plus 2 might be 4 in this case, where we have an inflammatory process. Fish oil has inf- anti-inflammatory properties. So here's my goal. One capsule per cat per day. One regular strength capsule should have about 300 milligrams of combined EPA plus DHA. They've done safety studies to show that 600 milligrams of combined EPA plus DHA per cat per day is safe. They look for bleeding problems. If your reader or your listeners have mm-hmm. gone in for surgery, they always tell you stop your aspirin and stop your fish oil because it's, it's anti-clotting. So some people might even go even higher than the 300 combined EPA plus DHA. So basically, water-rich, low phosphorus, your, get your omega-3 fatty acids in there for anti-inflammatories. We treat with potassium as needed because sometimes these guys get very hypokalemic, meaning low potassium in the blood. One of the reasons I don't like the renal diets is, is toward the end stage, they get hyperkalemic. Mm-hmm. They get too much potassium in the blood. And now and all the renal diets are fortified with potassium. So now where do you go? Yeah, exactly. I really love homemade diets. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of homemade diets and uh, on the recipes that I formulate that are got plenty of B vitamins, plenty of fish oil, potassium as needed. They're low phosphorus. They're high quality protein. They're a moderate amount of protein. And my, my patients thrive on these homemade diets. And so I could not agree more. And as you know, I'm a huge proponent of homemade diets, but the number one question I get, and I'm sure you get it too. In fact, it has to be the biggest pushback is I made a batch, I tried it, my cat won't eat it, now what do I do? Okay, yeah, people have to not get so discouraged. They have to roll up their sleeves, and they have to be patient. And also the key issue is change the diet before your cat is really sick. Mm -hmm. No sick cat wants to try something new. Next, use hunger as your friend. Don't put it down, and then they walk away from it, and then you give up and you you do whatever you, you you feed something else. Make them go 12 hours without, hung, you know, without food. I mean, make them go 18 hours without food. Get a little tough. Look at the tips for transitioning. There's, a, there's uh, in the sidebar of catinfo.org, there's a tips for transitioning dry food addicts to canned food. It's applicable to change to any diet. Hunger as your friend, number one. Take the diet they like, 90% of it. Mix in 10% homemade. Then go 80, 20, 70, 30, or do the opposite. Take 90% of the homemade Start slipping in a little fancy feast or Sheba or whatever you want to feed. Yep. But be patient. Be patient. Don't give up. You can really out-stubborn your cat, but people give up far too easily. They do. They do. And people don't realize kitties are just masters at manipulation. So, you know, we think, oh, I tried it two days. It's the, it's all is lost. The whole, you know, I can't. She's not eating it. She refuses to eat, and then they just give up. So I think the persistence thing is really, really, really important. And I want to give a time frame. It took me three months to get my cats off of 100% dry food. And some of them had never seen canned food in their entire lives, including my 10-year-old. It took me three months to get them from dry food to canned food. And then it took me, you know, a little bit longer to get them from the can to the homemade because the can tends to be a little gamey or smelling, a little right. bit maybe more flavorful. 
Um, you know, I love Fortiflora, <laughs> that, that Purina probiotic. Mm-hmm. My, if, if I put that on cardboard, my cats would eat it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just use it like salt and pepper, mix a little bit in and garnish on the top. And it's, that's, it's a liver digest. If you're going to pick something that a cat likes, most cats love liver. So if you go and you buy something like Fancy Feast, Chicken and Liver or Turkey and Liver, the classic feast, that's kind of my go-to for sprucing something up. I try to stay away from fish. I don't want to create a fish attic. There's other problems with fish. But if they're trying to transition, I don't mind using a little bit of fish, but you're going to have yeah. to wean them off of it. And, you know, I just we just want to interject real quickly here. For those of you that think, oh, my gosh, you just recommended fish oil, and now you're saying fish is bad, we have to clarify that there's no, you know, our issue with fish is the, the protein fish is that not only are many, many fish contaminated, but of course they have very high iodine content. So when, when Dr. Pearson's talking about fish oil, number one, they're, it's not, it's, you're not going to have an allergy issue. Number two, there's no iodine included. And number three, the good brands are tested for purity and potency, which means they're screening for heavy metals, PCBs. So all that to say fish oil is an entirely different category, despite the fact that it still contains the word fish, it's not the same thing as feeding fish as a protein source. So I just want to... I'm so glad you brought that up yeah. because I get that all the time. Why are you telling me you feed fish right. oil but not fish right. versus fat? Protein yeah. Versus yeah. So it's just important okay. that that we explain to our audience that fish oil is safe and fine. Feeding fish is not what we recommend for cats. So two Correct. different things. Yeah. Very good. Right. Okay, Dr. Pearson, last last concluding thoughts, ideas when it comes to cats. So you so we've we successfully weaned cats with a renal dysfunction onto a homemade species appropriate low phosphorus diet. Any other things you would uh, suggest to our listeners on what they can do to help extend their kitty's quality of life, longevity, or renal function by doing things at home? Um, you might want to ask your veterinarians because this is a prescription item about calcitriol. Calcitriol is the active form of vitamin D as in dog. One of the jobs of the kidney in the body is to take the inactive form of vitamin D and activate it. So in other words, it makes calcitriol. Uh, the parathyroid gland, not the thyroid gland, but the parathyroid gland is very uh, intimately involved with calcium and phosphorus balance. And it secretes parathyroid hormone, which can be toxic to the kidney if it gets too elevated. The off switch for PTH production is calcitriol. So if we don't have enough calcitriol in our body, there's nothing to tell the parathyroid gland, shut up, be quiet, don't stop, you know, stop making so much PTH. I do, you know, the literature is a little scanty and iffy on cats. It proved to be beneficial in a study with dogs. But I'm on VIN, Veterinary Information Network. It's kind of the who's who of all the veterinary specialists in the world. And Dr. Larry Nogaday, N-A-G-O-D-E, is, you know, he's a really big proponent of it. So are some of the, you know, the feline specialists in the, the feline medicine folder on VIN. I think it's a can't hurt, may help issue. So inqu- ask your, your listeners should ask their vets about using calcitriol. It is recommended early in the disease. Um, you know, if the dosage is adhered to properly, it's it's pretty much a. I think it's a can't hurt. Um, yeah. May help. We we did get some hypercalcemia early on that because our dosages were every day. We now do it twice a week instead, and the dosages were too high. So calcitriol, and you know what? I don't recheck these cats to death because you know my motto is. I feed them a good low phosphorus diet with plenty of antioxidants and anti-inflammatories. I use calcitriol, 
and then I call it a day. You know what? After that, the chips are going to fall where they may. I find that most of my clients get so frantic about what can I do, what can I do, what can I do? Not much. You know what? Those kidneys are going to progress as they're going to progress. Don't over-vaccinate, feed a water-rich diet, and you can sit back, love your cat, don't keep fretting about it because the kidneys are going to do what they're going to do on their own timetable, and there's really nothing we can do about it. And and haven't you found, Dr. Pearson, because I certainly have, that it's so impressive how resilient that these cats' bodies can be, that they can, in a state of kind of, you know, decompensation, they can just keep going and going and going. And sometimes if you were to recheck that BUN, it's 120, 130, 140, and they're still eating the kitties. They, they physically look okay. If you're chasing a number, if you're making decisions based on a piece of paper, um, I think we can become so overwhelmed by looking at the numbers on paper or the change in numbers on papers that it actually, A, takes away from the quality of life uh, for ourselves because we're so panicked about the numbers progressing. But I think it also puts us in a state of panic when it comes to unnecessarily fretting about the future when we should be enjoying the time that we have left. This, and I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, subcutaneous fluids. I find that subcutaneous fluids are used far too frequently and too early in the disease process. Um, I am also personally not a fan of Azadil. I don't feel that it works. I don't feel that there's any benefit. I don't want to see cats being pilled with these humongous capsules. I, you know me, I'm not. I'm typ- typically not much of a supplement person. I'm a feed yep. them good food, give them fresh water, call it a day, love them. And don't keep poking a needle in their back until it's really time. Well, and you bring up a really great point. I love Azadil, but but I do not believe we should be shoving anything down a cat's throat. I think if your kitties will eat supplements like Azadil or probiotics on their own, awesome. But the cool. last thing you're going to do is chase your cat around the house and have them hide underneath the bed and fear you, which is totally disruptive to your relationship, but most importantly, triples your animal stress response, which is going to end their life sooner than anything else you're doing. There's no reason we should be cramming anything down a cat's throat. So if they take supplements uh, voluntarily, awesome. And if they don't, well, then that's unfortunate. They don't. But I t- could not agree with you more. Cramming anything down your cat's throat is not only least optimal, it will dramatically reduce your cat's quality of life so don't do it absolutely and i have a pilling cats article on my website and i i i hate pilling cats i yep. know yep. people think i'm a real weenie about that but i just i hate it so yep. and then you know be careful about starting fluids too early i find and i find that a lot of boy i tell you my cats got kidney disease at 14 and 16 they died they both died four years later and you know what they never died from kidney disease they died from cancer yeah so and their urine specific gravities by the way i want to mention just because your cat has a low urine-specific gravity, that is not the kiss of death. Cats live three, four, five years and longer and quite often die from something else. So if, if somebody starts getting a low urine-specific gravity, no, no reason to panic. Yeah. No, no reason to panic. And, you know, you, all of your suggestions today have been common sense, very, very respectful to that, uh, to that cat's body. But I, th- I think most importantly... Um, should provide a lot of peace of mind. I think sometimes the more information we gather, although we want to use, of course, the knowledge regaining to be able to make best the really good best decisions, I think sometimes 
when we gain knowledge that maybe our cat could have early renal dysfunction, it ends up, A, creating a profound stress response within us, but then, B, it causes our local conventional veterinarian to give us this very long list of tasks that we need to be doing that can be overwhelming, daunting, but I think also also make us make decisions, not necessarily based on what our animal looks like and is acting like, but based on theoretical progressions that may or may not occur. So we end up creating a whole lot of stress for the entire house, and it doesn't have to be that way. Exactly, because I know on VIN they say, when do you start fluids? Oh, when the creatinine is three, very arbitrarily. No, you look at the patient. Are they eating a water-rich diet? Are they eating plenty of it? Do they have any vomiting or diarrhea? Are they bright and alert? You don't just start fluids arbitrarily at a number. You look at the patient, which is exactly what you just said, and you honor their stress level, and you don't get in their face too much. It's exactly right. Leave them alone and let them be. Yeah, and I think above all, that that's one thing that I think that, that we as veterinarians need to need to be very vocal about a whole lot more often than we are, that above all, we need to respect the animal's body. And if they say, don't do that to me, we need to not do it to them. And that's one of the things, the hardest thing I have ever been able to convince my client of is, you know, on you know, this is a really nice approach if our patient participates. But if we have a cat that chooses not to participate, that says, I never want sub-Q fluids, even when my blood work says I need them, I will not have them, you have no choice but to respect that. If your cat says, I will not take this medication, I will not, I, I do not want this done to my body, you can either force it on them, which I would never recommend, or you end up having to say, okay, that's your choice. These would be great treatment modalities that you're choosing not to participate, and I'm going to respect your choice. And I think that we need to encourage our clients to be more respectful and push less, and I think we don't do that as a profession. Yeah, I I agree 100%, 100%. My Toby, I thought he'd be very easy to give fluids to, and I tried it. He hated it. Never again. That's exactly right. And sometimes we end up making decisions to not treat the patient because they have decided that they don't want to be treated. And you know what that's called? That's called honoring our patient's wishes. Well, quality over quantity. Because, you know, let's face it, we want everybody, human and animal, to live forever. Forever. Of course. And 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 there's a selfish component to it because we don't want to lose them. Don't be selfish with your cat. Listen to them. Yep. All great information, common sense, really important information that we all need to hear over and over. So I appreciate you taking time to tell us once again your tips, tricks, ideas, thoughts, and amazing information. All this information can also be found on your website. Uh, and we'll direct people back to that website if they have additional questions. But thank you for taking time out of your very busy day to remind us of what we need to be doing when we're faced with some of these challenges. Sounds good. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. Talk to you later. Okay, bye.